Thank you, Tsunatetsuke and the team for leading us in worship. And um, I'm going to try and not be too distracted by the surroundings as I preach to you, as I'm also going to hope that the Lord would give you grace to uh, also not be too distracted and to hear me. I'm trusting that uh, at least one of the screens can be seen by everyone. Um, if not, uh, come to me at the end of the service and I'll send all the slides to you. You can meditate on them when you're at home. Please turn to Philippians chapter 3. We are in verse 12 um, to 14 this morning, carrying on with this wonderful letter of Paul to the Philippians. Um, and I'm really encouraged by the message this morning. I'm trusting the Lord's going to help me. I have to warn you from the start, there's some unction in me this morning. I'm hoping it's from the Spirit and not just from um, uh, tiredness. And I want to preempt you. It is my goal to level you. That's a, a Cape Town expression for um, uh, set you straight. All right? I don't just want to level you, though. I want to build you and I want to call you. But before you can be built or called this morning, I feel that the Spirit wants you to be leveled a little bit. And I see Paul saying the same thing to the Philippians in verse 12, 13 and 14. Let's read together. It says this, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. When I was 17 years old, I remember vividly being at a small group meeting with young teenagers and our youth pastor back then was a guy called Rob Hammond and he asked us a question I'm going to ask you the same question I want you to do the exact same thing I had to do I think it's good for the sermon and he asked us he said where do you think you're at spiritually on a scale of one to ten so that's my first question for you this morning where do you think you're at spiritually on a scale of 1 to 10? Don't worry, you don't have to say your number out loud. Okay, that's just for you. But I want you to try and get a number. And then I'll tell you what happened in our meeting. So one by one, he forced us to give an answer. And there was maybe 10 of us, and the answers went like this. Seven. I'm pretty sure that's probably a number that was well-picked. Okay. Someone was brave enough to say eight. There might have been a six. But all of the numbers were in the area of six, seven, and eight. These were 17-year-old Christians in our church in the 90s. And then it got to me. And I had picked this number. I wasn't influenced by everyone else. I was lost. I thought of changing my number after I heard everyone else's. And then I stuck to it. Because I had a reasoning. And that reasoning stands today. And in fact, I would actually change my number now. Here was my reasoning. If I say height, even though I'm tempted to, that's also saying I don't have that much further to go. Right? And if I think about it from that perspective, not kind of grading myself on how well I've done, but more going, Mark, how far can you go? And the number I gave was four. And I still think that's too high today. I wonder what your number was. Paul starts this letter by saying, or this portion of the letter by saying, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. 
And I've got a question for you on the screen now. Are we there yet? The most famous question ever asked by children in the car, the most annoying question ever asked by children in the car, and Ethan and I had to drive up to Sinsa just this last week and listen to that probably a thousand times over. Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? No. That was just Livy and Sebastian. We were trying to be detached from the conversation as far as possible. It should be self-evident we are not there yet. Why? Because the wheels are still moving. The car is moving forward. But I have to say to you, on this spectrum of are we there yet spiritually, I think it's a legitimate question to ask because I don't always see us moving. If you think you're there, that's a good time to stop. I wouldn't carry on going once you're there. Then you're going to miss it in another direction. And when I look at you and me, I don't see us running this race the way Paul's describing it over here. I see us parking off. Smelling the flowers, relaxing. And I'm asking myself, is it because somewhere along the line, we think we're already there? See, it's the job of the preaching team to help you see that salvation has got nothing to do with your works, which is true. And you can't add anything to what Christ has done, which is true. And Paul says that in verse 9 of uh, Philippians chapter 3. So the same Paul who's going to be saying something completely different today said this in verse 9. He said, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It is wholeheartedly true that our salvation is only dependent on what Christ has done. We can do nothing to add to that. That's the first truth you have to receive, because if you don't receive it, you are going to be tempted to keep trying to earn your salvation, and as long as you're doing that, you don't actually know Christ. We don't come to Christ through our human effort. We come to Christ by giving up our human effort. But that's part one. Paul moves on to a second part, because the danger with that preaching, even though it's true, and the fear with it, is that you're going to then assume there's nothing left for you to do. If Christ has done it all, and I simply trust in Him for my salvation, and now I'm saved, we then make a second mistake of carrying that same thinking into our sanctification, where we put almost zero effort into anything, because we are already there. That's why you have to ask yourself this question. Are you living spiritually like this mindset of, I'm there already? And that's why I have to ask you, are we there yet? And my answer to you and me is emphatic, no. We are nowhere near there yet. And if we aren't there yet, then the only response is to move forward, to keep going. Some of us are parking off. Some of us are like my under-11B rugby team. They had a perfect record. We lost every match. <laughs> my fullback was my fastest player. And teams learned early on, all you have to do in, against my team is kick the ball to the fullback. And my fullback would catch it and would see all these people bearing down upon him. And he would run like lightning in the wrong direction. <laughs> Gleefully running away. <laughs> you can't catch me. You know, right to his try line, over his try line. And they would then win the uh, scrum or get the ball in some way and score tries easily. He, some of you are doing that. You, you're going, no, Mark, I'm not parking off. I'm, I'm actually running. I'm going well. I'm, I'm moving hard. And you've pointed in the wrong direction. You're the Monty Python skit where, uh, I, I know this is offensive, but you've seen it, where they have the blind race, right? So all the blind people are standing there 100 meters, shoot the gun, and then everyone runs in the wrong direction. No one's running towards the, the goal. So you could be putting a lot of effort in. You might be sitting there going, Mark, I don't think you're right. I think I am actually putting a lot of effort into this. And I also want to say to you, if you're not pointed in the right direction, then that might be even worse than just smelling the flowers. I'm not sure which one is worse. Both of them are not going in the direction that they should be going in. 
I've been heavily influenced by three people, and I want to give credit to them because I actually want to encourage you to go find them, read their works, and you're going to go, oh, this is, sounds a lot like Mark's sermon. Okay? The first one is uh, Spurgeon. We're going to read a few things from Spurgeon. Spurgeon br- preached a brilliant sermon. I was inspired by it. Then I wrote my own, read mine, was disappointed, went back and read his. So if, if you feel disappointed after you, when you leave this morning, Go and find this sermon. It's called Onwards by Spurgeon on Philippians 3, 13 to 14. Even if you just read it. I didn't listen to it. I read it. Okay? It's printed on the internet. You can just read it. It just leveled me. And then Eaton has been helpful and um, another guy called Motia. These three writers have stirred me. Spurgeon quoted this guy, Chrysostom, and he says this, he who thinks he has obtained everything has nothing. If you are overestimating yourself spiritually, you are in trouble. Because if you think you're there and you're not there, you actually have nothing. There was a time in Paul's life where he overestimated himself spiritually. You can read it in verse 6 of Philippians chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles open or don't have it on the screen, this is why it's good to have your Bibles with you. Some stuff will be on the screen, some stuff won't. But in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, I'll read it to you. This is what Paul says. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteous under the law, blameless. There was a time in his life as a younger man where he estimated himself at 10 out of 10 spiritually. He said, I was blameless. Was he right? No. He was terribly wrong. He was not blameless. He was drowning in sin. And part of that sin was pride that came through his religious works that he'd worked so hard on. And he couldn't see that he was naked, wretched, and blind. As Revelation speaks about us. And the same thing can happen to you, a religious person trying hard to um, impress God and perform and do things for God and then set your estimate. We're terrible at self-estimation, by the way. They've done studies on this. Very good at estimating others. Terrible at accurately estimating ourselves. And Paul got it wrong. But he's not getting it wrong today. And that's why he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. He's learned to correctly self-estimate himself and he's saying, I'm not there yet, guys. And because he knows that, he's hungry. And if you're asking, where does he get this, like, almost single-minded passion and desire to run after and pursue Christ, It comes from this first point, this first space. Self-estimation is accurate. He is not there yet. That's where you need to get to. This is what Spurgeon said. When we mix with dwarves, we think ourselves giants. But in the presence of giants, we become dwarves. So what Spurgeon's saying there is what we do spiritually is we kind of go, I go to church. This person's a Christian. They don't go to church as much as I do. I'm doing okay. I go to small group. This person doesn't go to small group. I'm doing okay. I'm praying. When I speak to this person, I don't think they're praying as much as I am, or maybe they're praying as much as I am. Therefore, I'm praying the right amount compared to my peers. I'm doing okay. When you mix amongst dwarfs, you think yourself giant. That's what he's saying. The problem is the standard we're setting is based on who we've got around us, and we're all actually in the same boat. But in the presence of giants, we become dwarfs. Spurgeon said, try and read McShane's biography, and that'll set you straight. For him, it set him straight. Start to read some of the people who've lived their lives and really given everything they have for God, and you come away with a different perspective where you're not actually going, I'm doing all right. You're you're going, I'm not there yet. And that's healthier. 
I remember when I first went to OM training, I left here, 19 years old, missionary mark. I had arrived. No one else wanted to go do missions. I wanted to go and do missions, and I gave up my university prospects, and off I went, and I had arrived. I remember arriving at that training base, and they gave us a little uh, magazine to read, just filled with some stories of other missionaries. I thought, I better read what other missionaries are like, because that's what I am, okay? And um, the first story I read, the guy um, felt called to go to a village where every other evangelist who had ever gone failed, and they failed miserably. And people would come back within days, utterly broken, just at the, it was like Sodom and Gomorrah in there. It was so sinful, it was so hard to live there, and these missionaries were failing left, right, and center. And so this guy put his hand up, no one wanted to go, he said, I will go. I'm reading that going, yeah, that's me. I'm just like this guy. No one else wants to go, but I will go. And then he gets up to, and I'm thinking, yeah, Lord, if I was there, then I would do the same. If I heard someone else failed, um, I would go. So I'm on track with this guy. And then this guy arrives into our shot. Uh, he can see the village. But he's not in the village yet. He can just see it. And as soon as he can see the village, he decides, I'm not going to move a step forward. Now I'm going to pray. Then I thought, as I read that, I would do that too. I could walk to the village, see the village, and think, Spiritually now, this is not all up to me. Let's pray. And then I hit the part that leveled me and needed to. He committed to pray fervently without stopping until the Lord had told him, I've given you the city. And I, I couldn't carry on with my comparison. Because I realized the longest I'd ever prayed in one sitting was maybe an hour. And even that's quite distracted. I'm sure you can relate to that. So I can always, hey, I committed two hours to prayer there. How much of that was prayer? All right? But I could maybe go, Lord, I remember a time where for an hour I'd, I had a set of points to help guide me. And I spent five minutes on this, five minutes on this, five minutes on this, 12 things. And I did, and that was tiring. One hour. This guy prayed all night. And sometime on the second day, more than 24 hours of straight prayer, he didn't sleep. He felt a release in the spirit saying, I've given the city into your hands. And then he walked into the city and he didn't even preach. They just fell down and repented. And I closed the book humbled. And I said, Lord, I'm not doing this. That was good for me. Because I had the wrong self-estimation of my spirituality. Guys, and if you are thinking you're there or setting yourself higher than you are, you need to be leveled. Here comes Spurgeon's best effort at that. Many, I fear, are not really living so near to God as they think they are. Neither are they as holy as they dream. It is very easy to frequent Bible readings, conferences, and excited public meetings, and to fill oneself with the gas of self-esteem. A little pious talk with a sort of Christian who always walks on high stilts will soon tempt you to use the stilts yourself. But indeed, dear brothers and sisters, you are a poor, unworthy worm, a nobody, and if you get one inch above the ground, you get just that inch too high. Many of us are exceedingly good-tempered when nobody provokes us. Some are wonderfully patient because they have a sound constitution and have no racking pains to endure. And others are exceedingly generous because they have more money than they need. The grand thing will be to be sound before the living God in the day of trial. I pray every believer here to get off his high horse and to remember that he is naked and poor 
and miserable apart from Christ. And only in Christ Jesus is he anything. And if he thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But he does not deceive God. Paul has been an apostle for 30 years when he writes, I'm not there yet. He has planted churches. He has preached the gospel. He has performed miracles. He has been doing this for 30 years. He is in front of all of us. And he should be because he's the apostle. And he says, look to me, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So he's aware in some instances that he is in front of us, setting an example for us. And we need that, grateful for that. But even he will say, I'm not there yet. So anyone who thinks they're there, Spurgeon says, I'm staggered at you. Staggered at you. That you might think you are there when you're not there. And Paul, who's in front, says, I'm not there yet. That settles it for all of us. And we've got to fight off spiritual complacency, friends. It comes on us so easily. It will happen to you. It's part of what slows you down. It's the strategy of the enemy. There is a spiritual apathy that happens to all of us. And if you're sitting there saying it has never happened to me, even that in itself is a problem. I am aware of it. I'm living in a body of flesh. This thing is a mule that God is asking me to run upon, and it's like smacking it, and it doesn't go anywhere. But are you even smacking it? Or are you just sitting on it going, well, this is how he made me. Right? I'm not going to be hungry. I'm not going to chase after God. One of my favorite signs I ever read at a hotel said, the reason our food takes so long is because the hungry will eat anything. How hungry are you for God? Okay. If I haven't leveled you yet, I'm not going to get it right. It's time to move on. After Paul has a correct self-estimation of himself where he goes, I'm not there yet, even after all the work, after all this time, 30 years in, and everything in me is going because I'm not there yet, I'm coming on. He uses this word, dioko, press on, which is a strong word. It's not move forward. It's persecute. There's something violent about that word when he says press on. It's pour everything you've got into, strain ahead. If Paul can be like that after 30 years, then every one of us needs to be like that. After he correctly self-estimates himself, what is the second point? He says this, one thing, brackets, I love doing study because you learn stuff. I do. See, in your text, it says, doesn't have the brackets. It says this, um, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. In the Greek, the I do is not there. It's even more emphatic if you take the I do out. One thing. He is single-minded, focused on one thing. Correct self-estimation. I'm not there yet. Now what? One thing. In this beautiful psalm. Psalm 86, verse 11 says this. This is David. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Church, David knew, and Paul knew, and every Christian knows this heart is divided. I do believe your heart wants to know God more. I think you might be suppressing it, you might be complacent and pushing it away, but somewhere in there, I think your heart gets what Paul's saying here in that there's more and I should be pressing on for it. But the problem is your heart's filled with all sorts of other things and divisions and moving in other directions. And it wants this thing which isn't helping you get to know Christ more and it wants this thing which isn't helping you get to know Christ more. And so David's prayer 
is unite my heart. Paul's building point is one thing, single-minded. He's able to take his focus and put away everything else and look at Jesus and go, the only thing that matters is Jesus and becoming more and more like Jesus and noticing that when there's something else in my life that's competing with that, I'm putting it to the side. That's an impediment to, to this goal. And anything can do that, guys. Kids can do that. Now, I love my kids with all my heart. One of my greatest forms of my identity is a father, and I try and be the best father that I can be. But if Sebastian and Olivia ever get in the way of my pursuit of Christ, then they are an impediment. And you might go, well, how could they get in the way of your pursuit of Christ? I want to give you real-time problems that you are dealing with on a weekly basis. There are people who are not here this morning because they are putting their kids first and prioritizing some form of school uh, meeting, right? Now, if you do that week in, week out, I'm not going to say you can never do that, right? But if it so happens that over and over again you're prioritizing nippers or this or this and this, and less and less you're getting to the spiritual aspects of your walk, because you've put your kids first and you're doing stuff that you think is important for your kids, they've become an impediment to you. You are not doing what Paul's talking about over here. Now, I can be a good dad and run after Christ, and that should make me a better dad. But I've got to be so careful of allowing things into my life that are becoming an impediment to the pursuit of Christ. And it can happen in so many different things. So your prayer should be like David. Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Your prayer should be like Paul. One thing matters, and it's you. And I need your help with that because I have this distracted mind and this heart that wants so many other things. And how do you get to the point of being focused on one thing? Paul helps. He says, forgetting what lies behind. The first thing that's going to stop you is the past. And when I look at Paul's life and I think about him, and he's saying this to himself, he says, forgetting what lies behind. Think about his life. What lay behind him? What did he have to forget? Thanks, Adam Maria. I didn't think of that one. That's helpful. He had to forget a time where he lived persecuting the church. He had to forget a time where he got into a big fight with a good friend and it hurt the mission. He had to forget even the successes. It's not just negative stuff that you've got to forget. Even, there's sometimes going to be the successes that you end up spending too much time. Some of you are complacent because you're going, but I've done this and this and this for God. And Paul's saying, if you want to be focused on the one thing which is becoming more and more like Christ, you've got to forget everything that's behind that is an impediment to that pursuit. Now, do you forget everything? No, because when you remember his great mercy, that is not an impediment to you, so you remember that. There's multiple things you can look back on and remember, but the things that are holding you back from moving forward, that you need to forget. Some of us are in prisons of our past, and we stay stuck because we can't get over the stuff that has, we've done and the stuff that's been done to us. And we can't even get over the good stuff. I remember coming back from that mission field four years, 19 years old, I was 23, November 2004, I'm back here, and it was a success, my mom got saved while I was gone, I didn't do it, but God did it, my dad got saved while I was gone, I didn't do it, but God did it, Steve got saved while I was gone, I didn't do it, but God did it, that is, if you want to, what was the heyday of my life, it was this beautiful season coming back home to a family completely changed by the gospel, off the back of having been obedient to what God told me to do, and then seeing God at work in a powerful way in and through my life. 
And I still remember I had to stand on the stage and give feedback. And the Spirit had given me insight, and I said this. I cannot rest on what I've done. There's a temptation to, to kind of go, Lord, this would be a good time to end the movie. Let the credits roll. Because everything I've ever wanted has happened and had this amazing success. And I could live off of that. And I could go, there was this time when I told people about Jesus and they gave their lives to the Lord. and It was amazing. God used me. And there was this time I went on this mission trip. And I knew standing here, 23 years old, something in me said, Mark, it's over now. It's done. Move forward. Harry Truman said, what you are going to do is more important than what you have done. Church, listen. What you are going to do is more important than what you have done. Paul is also looking back at his successes. And he's going, it doesn't matter that God used me to do this and used me to do this and used me to do this. That is over. What matters is, what is God asking for me to do for him today? And there's the story of a painter. I should have memorized the name. It is a true story. You can Google it. I'm sure you'll figure out the name. Some Greek guy. I hope that helps. Google the Greek painter. Um, and um, he, he produced this beautiful piece of artwork, and um, he had a mentor, and he's uh, coming in to see his mentor, and the mentor watches him, and most of the day he's looking at this beautiful piece of artwork that was really good that he produced. One day he comes into his mentor's shop, and he finds that the artwork has been destroyed. It has been tainted and drawn over and ruined. And he goes to his mentor and he says, what happened to my beautiful piece of art? And the mentor says, I did it. It was holding you back. You've got better work in you and you're spending too much time looking at something you've already done. And he went on to produce one of the greatest pieces of artwork in antiquity. You can't stay focused on something in the past, even if it's a good thing. You've got to, if you're going to be single-minded in chasing after God, look at life today and go, this is what matters now. What do you want me to do now? What I have done is not as important as what I'm going to do. And the second trick Paul found was, so he was able to forget what had happened before, but he also kind of holds the future in the correct tension. And he mentions it. He says, uh, uh, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Some of us, the future is not helping us strain forward. It's weighing us down. We're afraid of it. So I've got a couple of people here who are cleverer than me who help me. Because I've also got a future I'm afraid of. Mayer says the Oriental shepherd was always ahead of his sheep. He was in front. Any attempt upon them had to take into account. Had to take him into account. Now God is down in front. He is in the tomorrows. It is tomorrow that fills men with dread. But God is there already. And all tomorrows of our life have to pass him before they can get to us. That is powerful, guys. We are living in fear and anxiety over something that if we have our faith and trust in God, God is saying, ah, nothing comes to you that doesn't pass through me first. And he's all-powerful. And in control. Lawrence says this. There are two days in every week about which we should not worry. Two days. And when I read that, maybe like you, I thought Saturday and Sunday. (laughs) 
Two days which should be kept from fear and apprehension. One of these days is yesterday with its mistakes and cares, its aches and pains, its faults and blunders. Yesterday has passed forever beyond our control. All the money in the world cannot bring back yesterday. We cannot undo a single act we performed. We cannot erase a single word we said. Yesterday is gone. The other day we should not worry about is tomorrow, with its possible adversities, its burdens, its large promise and poor performance. Tomorrow is beyond our immediate control. Tomorrow's sun will rise either in splendor or behind a mask of clouds, but it will rise. Until it does, we have no stake in tomorrow, for it is as yet unborn. That leaves only one day, today. Any man, by the grace of God, can fight the battles of just one day. It is only when you and I add the burdens of those two awful eternities, yesterday and tomorrow, that we break down. It is not the experience of today that drives men mad. It is remorse or bitterness for something which happened yesterday and the dread of what tomorrow may bring. Let us therefore journey but one day at a time. I want to read the line that just was a spotlight into my own heart again. Any man, by the grace of God, can fight the battles of just one day. You know, when I'm really struggling, what I'm doing is I'm looking ahead. I'll give you a very real date for me. I have a date in front of me coming at me like a train that I'm afraid of. In December, I have to make a decision on my brother who is severely mentally ill and where he goes. And I have been told that they want to release him, which means their expectation is that he comes to me. I will have to face December when it comes. And not, I don't know what I'm going to do yet. But I start to lose this battle when I'm bringing December now into September. Because when I pray about it, God's saying, Mark, leave that. It's not here yet. You don't know what I'm going to do before that time. You have today. Can you get through today and all the stuff I've given you? Yes. Trust me. We've got to leave the future where it is. We've got to focus on what God's asking of us to do today. That's how Paul stays single-focused, single-minded. Forgetting what lies behind. Straining forward in the present, and you are going to end up in what comes. And I, I love his last point. Because I'm a competitive person. He runs to win. I ran a 5K time trial on a Tuesday evening. My people ask me, when do you run? I say, I run at the 5K time trial and I try and run at park run. Why don't you? And I don't always make it because this last Tuesday, it was like tornadoes out there, so I didn't feel like it. And then this uh, Saturday, um, I, to be honest, slept late on Friday night and woke up on Saturday morning and went, no, eight o'clock's too early to go running. Now, I could go run on my own. And some of you do do that, and that's fine. I can't. I don't know why. Something happens to me when there's another guy there, and I want to beat him. It makes me run faster. I want him there. I want to see him. And Dioko, that I spoke about earlier, is an aggressive pursuit Paul's talking about. The same person that said, you can't do anything to earn your salvation. And there was a time when he did do everything he could to earn it, and he was wrong, and he estimated himself incorrectly. Now, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he uses the exact same determination he's always had to run after becoming more and more like Christ, putting in every effort. There is no complacency and holding back or overestimating in him now. No. Now he's saying, I press on. I run aggressively after this thing that Christ has for me to do. 
Dioko has a picture of a runner who starts to open stride. When I asked you earlier, how are you running? Some of you might be running even in the right direction and, and, and running, which means you are doing well because you, you're doing the things that God wants you to be doing. Dioko is even more than that. It's getting to the point in the run where you start to have your eyes fixed on the prize. That's what he says there. So we're getting closer to the end when you can fix your eyes on the prize. So he says over here, I'll read it to you, verse 14. So beautiful. I press on, Dioko, towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That means we're at the end. That's when you see the prize. At the end. On my 5K, do you know when I see the prize? Those of you that run that time trial, you start at Oxford Striders, you run up towards the traffic lights um, in uh, Ultron Sky Road, you run back down past Oxford Striders, and then you go on a really weird like circle, blah, 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 stuff down there somewhere, and then you've got to run back up uh, Beach Road, right? And then that be the first time I ran it, I did it wrong. I ran straight up Beach Road, okay? You've got to turn at the spa, turn right, so move off track a little bit, and then run in from behind there. What that does, though, is there's this moment where Oxystriders comes into sight. But you can't run in there because it's the back of Oxford Striders, but you can see the two beacons. You see them, that's a K out. You get a look at the end, one K out. And that's why my fastest K on my time is always the last one. Because as soon as I see that, and it's also helpful if the Lord's placed a man in front of me. Okay? And that's what happened this last time. This last time it was beautiful. I'm running up Beach Road, pacing myself. Some big guy that I immediately estimate as not being as fit as me runs past me. Okay? Everything in me was like, compete, compete. But no, no, calm down. Be mature here. He's running his race. You run your race. But for some reason, he wasn't gaining once he'd gotten past. I was able to hold him there. And when we hit those beacons, and he was maybe 300 meters in front, when, we, when I saw those beacons, I think he was about to turn up the road. So I could just see him. He was about to turn up the road. I saw those beacons. I saw him. And Dioko happened. Because now I'm going, Mark, have you got anything left? Because there's no point saving it if you're near the end. And I found something I wasn't sure was there, and my stride opens, and I pass him before we enter Oxford Striders, and he wasn't slowing down, and I clear him by almost the whole of the Oxford Striders final grass part. I was flying in that final cut. That's what Paul's speaking about earlier. Run to win. The end is here. We can see Jesus. Open your stride. Don't finish this race with anything left in reserve. Not even Christians think like this. Clark, who is a Christian, says this about Diogenes. When it was said to Diogenes the cynic, Thou art now an old man, Rest from thy labors. To this he answered, If I have run long in the race, will it become me to slacken my pace when I come near the end? Should I not rather stretch forward? That's what it means to not sit back on your laurels. Oh, I'm old. I've done a lot. I can tell you of all the great things I've done for God. No, no, no. I've got um, senior uh, small groups, two of them. Lovely, godly people. They don't know how much time they've got left. They, they tell me they don't want much more time left. Okay? They tell me we would prefer weeks rather than years at this stage. So I said to them, no, you might have two years, you might have ten years. And then one of them, their eyes lit up and said, two weeks? I don't know how much time you've got left. But whatever time God's giving you left, friends, and this is for all of us because some of you young people might have less time than they do because we don't know. Run with everything you've got. Don't rest on what you have already done. 
Will there be things that slow you down? Outside of your control? Yes. Are you battling sin from within? Yes. You are carrying a sack of cement with you. As God asked you to run this race. This flesh is not willing. And if I have to drag it over the line with all the will in me and determination in me to be more and more like Jesus, and though I might crawl, I am pulling this thing. I am coming. And there's going to be stuff that's not even within. There's stuff without. There's stuff happening to you to slow you down. When I was teaching at George Randall Primary School, I um, had a child that wasn't doing well in maths and ended up failing the year. And the parents came at me with everything they had. They had connections. It was, I'm not going to get into all the details of it. We don't have time. But I end up sitting before the um, head of the department in the Eastern Cape and the deputy, the two biggest honchos in education, decided to come to George. They don't even live in East London. They come to George Randall for the day to put me in my place. And Anita remembers that time well because I don't deal well with stress. I don't deal well with future problems. I knew this meeting was coming, and I was a puddle. I like to think of myself as a strong man, but I turn into a puddle quite often. And God's given me a beautiful woman, strong woman, who loves God, and she finds gems for me when I can't find them. Here's a gem from Anita for Mark at a time when the outside was starting to weigh me down and win. Jeremiah 12, verse 5. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? Anita didn't try and explain that. She just said, this is a verse I felt is for you. And as soon as I read it, I felt like God gave me the, a word. Mark, right now, you are running with men on foot. This is nothing compared to what's coming. Our church hadn't gone through our crisis yet, and I hadn't gone through my personal family crisis yet. I was struggling with a work issue that at that time in my life was big. And I felt the Lord prophetically say to me, it's going to get worse, bud. And if you're struggling now, how are you going to handle it when I actually put the horses amongst you, not just the men? And as I get that prophetic charge, warning, you know what else I get with it? And I'm giving it to you. A confidence that I will run with the horses. Even though I'm struggling with the men, God is saying, something's coming that's going to be more difficult than this. And you're going to run. Why? Because I'm significant or good or rubbish. Because God is with me. So you might be going, this is the part where I round out my sermon a little bit. You might be going, Mark, are you saying it's all up to us? Of course not. You should be giving all that you've got. You should be holding nothing back. You should be dioko in your pursuit of Christ and single-minded in your pursuit of Christ, and giving all that you can to shaking off spiritual complacency and being as hungry as you can and going after Christ with all that you have. And as I say that, I know that you can do it. Why? Because He's with you. His Spirit is with you. If you find yourself in this place where you are heart open, running as best you can, despite all of your weaknesses, despite all of your failures, God promises to run with you. If you can uh, if you're struggling with the men running on foot, how will you compete with the horses? There is actually promise in that. God knows what's coming. He knows if it's going to get harder. He's able to help you through it all. I'm going to close with this poem from Flint. This is what some of you need to hear today. He gives more grace when the burdens grow greater. So do you have to run with all your heart? Yes. Are there going to be burdens slowing you down? Yes. He gives more grace when the burdens grow greater.
He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for Paul out in front, but also coming alongside and saying brothers. Just like us, knowing what it's like to not be there yet. And we thank you for this wonderful example in your word of a life lived, running with everything that he has to pursue the prize of knowing Christ. And I want to pray for those in this room that have been leveled today in a good way. If you've become aware of some spiritual complacency and you are able to own it, that is a grace to you, my friend. That's God speaking to you. That puts you in a space where you can get hungry and say, Lord, unite my heart. Make me hungry for you. May I look at everything that gets in the way of pursuing you as an impediment and may I uh, do the things that you've given me to do in obedience, and in a way that draws me closer to you. I pray, Lord, that every person in this room would be hungry for you. I pray, Lord, that every person in this room would look at their race now and run and see a finish line that's near. Jesus, you're almost back. Help us to open stride. May there be nothing left in us, Lord. May we pursue you with everything that we've got. We thank you for the work you did on the cross that is perfect and finished. But we acknowledge that you have included us in the work of salvation and sanctification. And our efforts matter. And so we say to you, Lord, help us to shake off the things that burden us, the things that slow us down. And may we apply every effort to know you more and to love you more. May we hear the Spirit speaking to us this morning and may our response be obedience and may our stride lengthen so that we can finish running as hard as we can. In Jesus' name, amen.